It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? Hello, and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. I'm Marissa Martinelli, an assistant editor here at Slate, and today we're spoiling Always Be My Maybe, the Netflix romantic comedy that stars Ali Wong and Randall Park as childhood friends and one-time lovers who reunite after 16 years under very different circumstances. Sasha is a celebrity chef, while Marcus is a musician who never left their neighborhood in San Francisco after the death of his mother. Helping me spoil the movie today, we have two of my very favorite Slate staff writers in the studio. First up, Heather Schwedell. Hi, Heather. Hi, Marissa. And Ingu Kang. Hi, Ingu. Hello, hello. (laughs) So I've already mentioned Ali Wong and Randall Park, who not only star in the movie, but they actually produced it and they co-wrote the script with Michael Galamco. Wong has said that they envisioned the project as their version of When Harry Met Sally, classic rom-com. But there's another very important co-star of this movie I feel we should mention up front, and that is Keanu Reeves playing himself. And whose role Netflix was kind of keeping secret for a while, but then they put him in the trailer. It's kind of weird. They actually, when I went to go see this movie, um, like at Netflix headquarters, they made me sign an NDA saying (laughs) that I would not reveal Keanu's role in the movie. And then like the next day, they were like, here's Keanu in the trailer. (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised at how big his role in this movie was. I thought it was going to be like a one and done you know, a scene cameo where he shows he's a good sport playing himself, but it was a an enduring appearance. What it made me think of was, oh, this is just marketing for John Wick, which is weird because it's own it's its own movie, but it is kind of good publicity for it too. So I, I don't know. I was just thinking about the way in which Netflix is quote unquote content and it might have a more insidious tenor to it than some other movies because it even though well Keanu's playing a version of himself but it, it it's so central in the movie and even though he's playing kind of a bad or pretentious version of himself it's still great for him and I think it just reignited the internet's Keanu love and it if it was a marketing move or just kind of a strategy about his image seems to have gone pretty well. It's funny you say that this was a bad version of himself because I found him so delightful. <laughs> like, the movie tells us he's a jerk through Marcus. Right. I mean, he is a jerk. He's, like, very condescending, and he, like, at one point takes uh, Marcus's face in his hands and is like, oh, like, <laughs> you can't afford this dinner that we just had, which, by the way, happened to be $6,400. So this is probably going to be a sticking point in this conversation, <laughs> but I could not stand Marcus as a character. Oh, no. And I think that shaped a lot of how I was pro-Keanu. I think that's, I think your reaction to Marcus is extremely fair. It's also one of the things I sort of, like, really wanted to nitpick at the movie for. I liked Marcus. I think. Boo. I'm sorry. Are we going to have like a hot priest? Like? I know. It's hot priest all over again. <laughs> um, for those of you who didn't hear, that's a reference to our Fleabag spoiler special. Listen to it. Um, we all have our dukes up. We're ready to go. No, I think Marcus, when he was, when we find out that, um, you know, he's gone into the family business, he didn't go to college, he became an HVAC specialist, I guess. Um, like he does heating and air conditioning, um, which is what his dad does. When we first found that out, I was kind of like, oh, brother. But seeing the rap really made me like him more. Right. Um, he is very talented musically. I, let's let's back up a little okay. bit and establish the relationship between our two leads. In my eagerness to talk about Keanu, <laughs> I may have jumped the gun a little bit. It's um, justified. 
So this is the rare rom-com that is not set in New York City, which is very refreshing. Although the characters do wind up in New York eventually. A lot of it is set in San Francisco. And Ingu, I know this is particularly of interest to you as Slate's resident San Francisco correspondent. Yeah. San Francisco is a third Asian. And I feel like that aspect of the San Francisco is never depicted in its entirety. So I think the only other movie that like really comes to mind immediately in terms of like Asian representation in San Francisco is the movie Big Hero 6, which was, I believe, like an adaptation of like a Japanese manga and also that version of San Francisco was called San Francisco. And so it was this like very beautiful combination of San Francisco and Tokyo and like a lot of the characters were Asian American. And so that was great, but it was just sort of, but that was like also an animated film. And so it's sort of just like nice to see all of these to see representations of people that I see literally every single day of my life in an actual movie deserving storylines. Right. And it also played in in a nice way to sort of the stereotypical rom-com heroine profession of running a restaurant in that there was cultural specificity to the restaurant in a way that I think is lacking from a lot of rom-coms. This movie has some interesting things to say about food. Yes, which I I think we should sort of maybe like talk about the plot and then we can talk about the food. But like, I think the food politics of this movie is maybe not the best. And it's actually like my biggest gripe about the movie. Well, they, the food they... politics sort of originate in this introduction that leads up to modern day 2019, where we see Marcus and Sasha's friendship starting from when they're very young and how, like when they're nine. Right. They're they're very young, and we see that Sasha's parents are not around. She's a latchkey kid, and Marcus lives directly next door, and so she goes over there regularly and is almost part of the family. I mean, she is on a first-name basis with his mom, Judy, who plays a big role in their story, even though she's really only on screen for a short time because she dies. But she also teaches her how to cook. How to cook Korean food specifically. Mm -hmm. And Sasha, I think, is a Vietnamese character. Um, I thought there was some ambiguity about that. Am I wrong? When I was reading up on this, it it all, all the um, reviews and just features said Vietnamese, but I hadn't really, you know, gotten that impression from the movie, but I also wasn't. I think she has a Vietnamese last name, but I I think otherwise it's a little vague. Mm -hmm. I will say that one of the things that I, as a critic, um, try not to ding movies for, but also will totally sort of gripe about, like, among my friends is... You're among friends here. (laughs) (laughs) Is when, like, Asian Americans don't play, like, the ethnicity that they are. And, like, there's a bunch of reasons why, like, it's hard to do but I think it was sort of nice that Randall Park who is Korean played a Korean American dude and I think it was nice that like Ali Wong who is Vietnamese and Chinese played a I think like a Vietnamese woman and so it it's just like such a small detail but it's one of those things where like because it doesn't happen very often it's just nice yeah that was a conversation with um to all the boys I've loved before the, the lead, um, I think, wasn't Korean, but the character is half Korean. And There's so many other movies. There's so many other things wrong with that movie. Well, I know you hate <laughs> that movie. I love that movie. Um, yeah. Why do you think that, um, like, what about that do you appreciate, though? I mean, I think it's possible that some people are sort of, like, overthinking it. But I think that what is pretty central to a lot of Asian Americans, especially if you are the child of immigrants, is that like, I don't think that like, I really had like an identity as like an Asian American until I went to college. And then I took like Asian American courses. I think like the identity I always grew up with was like Korean or Korean American. And so generally, people think of themselves like in that particular ethnicity as opposed to like this umbrella term that's much more political than it is a personal label. And so I think 
also, if you are Asian American and you keep up with pop culture, you tend to keep like a list of like who else is Korean, for example. And so I feel like I I created like a little like Randall Park box in my brain like a very <laughs> long time ago. Um, and so it's just one of those things where like, oh, someone that I was rooting for for like a long time who finally gets to like have his thing now. Yeah, I do that with Jewish characters. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, actors. <laughs> uh, I mean, this movie is there's a lot to talk about in terms of authenticity, which is kind of a loaded term. But it's not just that these are actors playing their specific ethnicity. I mean, they also wrote the script. And I think that that personal touch that they, you know, they wrote it, this was their vision, and that they're acting the characters really shows. I think also, like, sort of their priorities as Asian Americans also. Like, you can see it in the film, I think think that I, I think like they both went to UCLA which is like heavily Asian American and also has like a very booming Asian American studies department they were like in the same Asian American theater group at UCLA and so these are people who are like very immersed in that field and I think one way that comes out in the movie is that Sasha has three love interests in the movie and if you are thinking about this as like a possible green lightable project i can imagine like a a network executive saying like oh you need like a white character Mm -hmm. in order to make it more quote-unquote relatable and the fact that all three of her love interests are asian american because ali wong was like i really want to show like the desirability of like asian american men in my movie like that's there because, like, that's part of, like, what she wants to do with the movie. Yeah. And is there any white character with a substantial role? There's the one lady at her restaurant opening who's, like... Yeah, that one lady very much name her, you can't come her personality, <laughs> Her personality trait is very much the white lady. Yes. <laughs> uh, who says she's a sucker for menus printed on rice paper. Oh, Casey Wilson. Okay. Um, the, the one who kept talking about the gooby chairs and she, she's yes, the designer. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to mention the chairs. I, I looked up what they were. They're, they're like these curvy chairs. So there you go. Gooby chairs. They're really expensive, right? I looked them up and there are designer ones that go for thousands of dollars. Yes, they are quite expensive. Well, it's, it's an upscale restaurant. So to, to tie back to the plot... So then, Sorry, uh, there's a plot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So we meet them as kids, and then um, we see that they spend their childhood together. And then when Randall Park's character's mother dies. When they're like 18. Yes. And they're playing themselves as like gawky <laughs> teenagers at this point. So Ali Wong has like fake braces in. So when that happens to comfort him, Ali Wong kisses him, and it turns into them having sex in the back of his car and it it gets awkward for them and then we skip ahead to the present times and the presumption is that they haven't really talked in the meantime well, well before we skip ahead they have a big fight oh yeah in a burger king um yes. yeah this who among sequence, us has <laughs> whole sequence because i've under my understanding is that this whole sequence took place in one night there was the maybe not a funeral but there were mourning for his mother and then they had sex in his car, and then they had a friendship-ending fight that caused them to not speak for 16 years. That's a lot to absorb in a very short amount of time. Yes, and I think, like, the character development angle of this is that basically his mom died, and he's really upset. But because she's this latchkey kid whose parents work at, like, a convenience store, like, every single hour of the day, she feels like she sort of lost a mother figure to her. And basically, uh, Marcus is like, I don't even know, like, why you're that upset. Like, it's not your mom. Well, he just feels possessive over his mother and, you know, doesn't want to share her in this in that way at this moment. He's lashing out, basically. I think. One of the flaws of this opening is that some of the scenes might have been better suited to flashbacks later in the movie because we go very quickly from establishing this kind of homey routine between the two of them where they almost have this sibling-like chemistry and then we see just sort of flashes of, you know, they're at school together, there's arm punching, uh, and we go right to 
18, mom dies, have sex, big blow up fight. I, I just I had trouble nailing down the chemistry between the two of them to explain like what it is necessarily that is causing this attraction because to me they they had such a sibling like bond that the kiss in the car was awkward and they didn't really have any time to explore that because after that they don't speak for 16 years i think i knew where you're coming from but i also feel like they're teenagers going through like a really intense emotional reaction and so i was like eh like that sounds about right to me like it's just like a terrible stupid thing to do where you're sort of like ah I don't know what to do with my brain or my body so let's just try this thing I mean sure true to life but I as a this is not life this is written by a screenwriter (laughs) and I feel like they really could have built up the connection because when the two do finally see each other again after 16 years I did not get any spark of oh rekindled attraction I just got this is a very awkward scenario so I will say that so much of this movie obviously depends on, like, the chemistry between the lead actors. And they did not feel like they really had a lot of chemistry. I think they had, like, a really great, like, sibling chemistry. Mm -hmm. But they did not have sexual chemistry to me. And I think it was, like, fine because it's not, like, a super-duper sexy movie. But it was one of, like, the parts of the movie that sort of was a letdown for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Ali Wong's character had more chemistry with Keanu Reeves. (laughs) I mean, everyone has more chemistry with (laughs) Keanu Reeves. (laughs) Oh, so who Ali Wong is dating Daniel Day Kim. He's hot. In the present. Um, (laughs) We're we're prepared for another hotness fight. And he's sort of um, an entrepreneur manager of of her restaurant and other restaurants. So they work together and he's, she says he's older than her. She says he's 50 at one point. But they, the, the deal with them is that they kind of, they, you like, they're working together professionally and it's great for their careers, but they don't really like each other or have much in common. Um, and we see them sitting in a car going home from some event and they're just sitting really far away and both on their phones. Yeah, I thought this movie really underutilized Daniel Dayham. I would say that too. I thought their relationship, so they're engaged, but then all of a sudden he decides he wants to go do like an Eat, Pray, Love in India, which is not really fair. That's what they say in the movie, but he's a restaurateur, so it's not wholly unreasonable that he would want to do something like that. Well, he wants like a rumspringer, right? Right. He does, The way he presents it is, oh, we'll be apart for six months and we'll see other people. And he springs it on Sasha in a way that is not great. But otherwise, I thought it was like, they have a mutually beneficial relationship. And she didn't seem all that emotionally invested either. And I thought this was going to be like the undercurrent of the movie that Sasha is engaged technically and she can see other people and she's exploring and that's going to be the question is like, oh, does she decide to get married? But she actually breaks off the engagement on her own really early. Yeah, she sees pictures of um, him with Padma Lakshmi and she's like, (laughs) no way. (laughs) But I think that sort of speaks to her character where she is sort of this like, not that I would know what any of this is like, but she's, you know, sort of a sharp personality. She has a lot of elbows. And so when she gets pissed, she just kind of like blows up at him. And it's in the trailer, like the scene where like she just sort of yells at him continually. But that was a really fun moment where she just sort of wishes upon him a series of really terrible things to happen to him. And then it turns out, oops, everyone can see her yelling at him. She has a lot of moments like that in the movie. I particularly like any time a character says bitch. Um, it, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they have a few bitch. different ways of, no, it's, they're always like, um, oh, when at the end of the movie when Randall Park walks into the fancy store, he's like, step aside, bitch, or something. (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did not understand what the function of this engagement was supposed to be right that it was broken off so early because Just theoretic- daniel day kim in the movie <laughs> i mean listen i'm not complaining but theoretically the contrast between the two characters would be what would be interesting in the mm-hmm. love triangle instead they dismiss him and they bring in keanu 
which is a totally different dynamic mm-hmm. and raises there's there's less of a question of is she choosing between this guy who's beneficial for her career but with whom she doesn't have like a genuinely loving relationship or this childhood best friend who is resurfaced and loves her for her. I was missing that. I oh, thought that and he has a girlfriend of his own too who is a funny does. character. She is this sort of hippie with dreadlocks um, and who, you know, is a bleeding heart, like want all these liberal causes. She works with children and she's Asian as well, which I think is probably another thing that they did on purpose because they want to show, you know, all different types of Asian people. Okay, so this was my big question about that character. There's a scene where, like, she already knows that they had dated or were friends. Um, And basically... She knows that Sasha and Marcus had dated. Yes, and she is super honored to have Sasha, this, like, very big celebrity chef, come to her house and eat her food. And, of course, Sasha is like, ugh, but... She sort of, like, lies, and um, this girlfriend is, like, very, very happy. So my question is, was she serving spaghetti and sausages with the spaghetti skewered through the sausage? I yes. did not notice that she skewing. was. She definitely was, and they have that at that fast, that Filipino fast food. Jollibee. Yeah, they have that there. So Okay. <laughs> I feel like it was a very important because it is a... It is certainly a choice. And if that was her food choice, that says a lot about that character. That is where I will leave that. Yeah, I thought that was supposed to say, like, this woman, you know, lives on her own planet and, like, (laughs) is giving, like, this weird food to a professional chef and just, you know, has no sense of normal, like, politeness or... I did love the fact that, like, Marcus and Sasha, after they leave the girlfriend, sort of go on this, like, extended riff about how she has dreads and how do you get Asian hair to have dreads. <laughs> um, I will note that I think dreads were also a really big thing in, like, India mm, thousands of years ago. However... Well, it's a question of texture, right? As opposed to... Is it? Culturally. I, that's the way I took that comment. Can I reveal something truly disgusting? Yes. <laughs> Please. So when I was like six, there was like a period where like it was right after I was allowed to brush my own hair, but also I could not be bothered to brush my own hair. Oh dear, I and know where so this is going. I ended up with like a dread sort of like in the back of my head and I didn't brush my hair for weeks and weeks. So it just like kept on growing. So I know that Asian people are totally able to have dreads. <laughs> However, I did enjoy this joke quite a bit. I hope no one listens to this spoiler <laughs> special. Um, and he also makes a joke about how she sleeps bottomless like a sexy Asian Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that was a great joke. The dialogue yes. in this movie was it's so really zippy. Good. Yeah, I think for me... This movie worked best as a comedy and less as a romance. Yes. Because it is genuinely funny. And I love Ali Wong's stand-up. And I feel that you really get her humor in here and that irreverence and the willingness to say what is out there. I do like the love interest for both of them. that They both have someone at various points because it really does match nicely with the idea that this is a Harry Met Sally kind of thing and that the timing is wrong. The movie itself doesn't follow them as adults as much as, you know, when Harry met Sally in various periods of dating with too many love interests, but I appreciated that at least as sort of a thematic connection. Yeah. um, When I first saw the When Harry Met Sally comparison and that that movie was specifically part of the inspiration, um, that sort of made me realize, oh, that's what they were going for. Because to be honest, when I saw the title, Always Be My Maybe, I thought it was going to be more of like an on-again, off-again thing. Mm -hmm. Like, was he always her maybe? I mean, (laughs) debatable. (laughs) Right. I think I also went in with that same expectation and was surprised that they had this period of time where they didn't talk for, for a reason as opposed to just losing touch. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I guess we should go to yeah. Keanu. Keanu. We have to talk about Keanu. <laughs> Where to begin? Well, so... Randall Park's dad kind of wants um, the two of them to be together and people in his life are pushing him and he's almost ready to say something to Sasha. But then it turns out she has this new man who she met, by the way, at a a Netflix party she catered. Netflix is so creepy, like putting its Netflix references within its Netflix movies. (laughs) Oh, but this was a great one. It's it's not the crown that she's catering. It's a Kevin James show where he plays a young Ben yeah, Franklin. Yeah, Netflix making fun of Netflix on Netflix. And it's it's all like ghosts control. in the machine. Yeah, I thought that was actually pretty smart. When I first heard them say Netflix on the show, I rolled my eyes because Netflix does do this a lot on its own shows. But I mean, Ali Wong has been a boon for them. She's done stand up. She did Tuca and Birdie. I thought it was fine to be self-referential there. I enjoyed it. So basically, uh, she is catering this event. She's not having, like, the best time. And then I thought the way that they shot this was so great because, like, you see her in close-up and then you sort of, like, see a hand go to her shoulder and say something like, I'm sorry, like, were you the genius who, like, did all of this or something along those lines? And then you see her turn around and she makes just, like, the most surprised, happy face and then it cuts. And then you find out later when Sasha proposes a double date between uh, Marcus and his girlfriend and basically Sasha and her new man, that it is dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, Keanu. And his walk-on is is just (laughs) majestic. I love that part where he has, like, the wind machine on him or whatever. They just make him look like this beautiful apparition walking in. Did you notice what song was playing as he came in? What was it? It's Sail by AWOL Nation which I only mention specifically because, it, first of all, it heightens the drama of his entrance, but also Fleabag used the same song oh. <laughs> for a very different kind of scene where, where Fleabag's on the, the tube and all oh, of the right. passengers in the first season. kind I, of lose I totally miss that. In little bursts. It's a surreal scene for Fleabag, but just totally to go from that to this totally played for comedy moment which is cut between the slow motion reactions of Marcus and his girlfriend and then just Keanu being Keanu like around the restaurant. I read, I read an interview about like how they got Keanu because like I think that's like a really big um, part of like the always be my maybe industrial complex right now. <laughs> and essentially they were talking about how they convinced him to do this movie. And like it was like a big meeting at like the Chateau Marmont, which is like a big celebrity hotspot in L.A. And basically like everyone at the meeting was like, yes, that's exactly how Keanu like moved into the room, which I thought was like great. So now I'm just imagining him doing that walk like all the time. But he comes in and he has these like giant black plastic glasses and then I think it was like Marcus who was like oh nice glasses and Keanu's like oh no like these are not real glasses they don't even have the lenses in them and then sort of like pokes his fingers through the lenses um and then they do they have this like meal that like I don't even know if I heard half of the dialogue because there were only three people at my screening um, and we were all so, like, cackling loudly that, like, we drowned out, just like the three of us, like, the dialogue in the thing. But I did catch that, like, one of the dishes that Keanu ordered for the, for the table is, like, something that plays with the concept of time. <laughs> and then there's, like, another dish that has to be accompanied um, with headphones. So you can hear that, the yeah, animal. that's the same dish. Oh, as you're okay. eating it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very much a take on sort of hoity-toity, rich experimental food. I didn't... Keanu, to me, was the source of all of the comedy of this scene because the other stuff, like, the no lenses in your glasses, Ghostbusters made that joke with Chris Hemsworth. The hoity-toity restaurant stuff. I mean, Parks and Rec skewered that really well with the nightclub where it's like the whiskey is served as a lotion and the vodka served as a flash of light. So I didn't think that necessarily carried the scene as much as the performances of everyone involved. I know what you're saying. I think Keanu does particularly well 
with um, that that sort of thing because his persona is that he's I don't even know how to say it like he has a lot of personas I think it's not that he's woo woo but maybe like spiritual and kind of believes in but not in a hippie way like in a transcendentalism way or something like you expect him to be into kind of weird stuff to me it was just a general sense of larger than life but I mean earlier we we talked about is this a bad self-lampooning portrayal. I think he is making fun of himself, but I didn't think it was bad by any means. I mean, he's ridiculous and outlandish, but this takes us back again to what you think of Marcus and Sasha and whether you think Marcus is a good match for Sasha. Because to me, I mean, Keanu coming in and saying, oh, who is this genius who organized this event? is such a contrast with Marcus, who is so down on her career consistently. And then I thought, like, one really big flaw in this movie is that, like, as we are getting these, like, crazy dishes, I think, like, the main course is, like, an all-black dish, and it just looks like a dead squid. But, like, not, like, in a good dead squid way, like a (laughs) dead squid sort of, like, sitting on a plate for like three weeks sort of way and then at the end Marcus is like oh I'm sorry like can we go get like a monochromatic burrito because like I'm so hungry but I felt like a big flaw in this scene is that we never see what Sasha thinks of all of this food and like all of these mm-hmm. um, I mean you can call them pretensions or you can call them like attempts at artistry however failed and so if this is her job and Keanu is like really into it like on the one hand I get it but like on the other hand I don't know what she makes of all of this and so basically they move from the restaurant to I think Keanu's hotel room and I don't understand Marissa how you think Keanu is a good guy because then he almost immediately tries to get Marcus to hit him for me this was like a really great send up of that type of rich guy who is like almost so numb to everything that all he wants is experience so he feels something and like that extends to him telling Marcus like oh why don't you just punch me because you know what I want to experience the fullness of life or whatever first of all First, he breaks a vase over his head. (laughs) So this guy is the real deal, okay? This was not an empty taunt. He wanted to be punched. Um, Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. You just said he wanted to be punched as, like, a thing in, like, the good qualities pile. So I just want you to be aware of that Um, in your life. He's authentic, and Marcus is so scared to the point of selfishness where he's holding back his band by refusing... Yeah, but the but what is Sasha getting out of this relationship other than as, as in the climax of the movie when finally Marcus gets off his ass and does something big and romantic while interrupting a major moment in her life, which we'll get to. <laughs> but basically all he has to offer is I'll hold your purse, which is supposed to be him overcoming sort of this, I don't know, inferiority complex or whatever it is that made him insecure to do that. But just, I just don't understand what she's getting from him beyond, like, a nostalgic familiarity and the memory of his family and um, that sense of belonging. Because in this scene, to yeah, me... But that doesn't make Keanu... A, that doesn't change that he's an asshole in the scene. And I think it builds. Like, first, we're just enthrall of him, but it gets worse and worse until eventually he's punching Marcus. But I was Keanu in this scene. I was like, <laughs> do something. Show and some Marcus kind was, of Marcus was spunk. being a jerk, too. And um, Sorry, but the thing is that, like, when Marcus and Sasha finally decide, like, they have had enough with this crazy night, and they are going to be called an Uber, Keanu calls them an Uber pool. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm not saying Keanu was, like, a a good choice for Sasha. Well, I'm just saying that compared to Marcus as a character, I understood the appeal more. To just talk about the the real Keanu versus the movie Keanu, I think any time a character agrees to parody themselves, you know, we're supposed to see that as like, oh, what a guy. They'll, uh, they'll even parody themselves. So Menchie. But, and like, it's, it's like Neil Patrick Harris in the Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle movie or um, in Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, James Vanderbeek. So it always ends up being just like 
this rich guy who, you know, is very full of himself. So I think uh, some of that got kind of nonspecific. Like I was trying to talk about how Keanu was specifically satirizing himself and people's view of him as that guy that says, whoa, a lot. (laughs) But but I think some of it just got to like generic rich asshole. I I think a little bit. I think they definitely did lean on the sort of woo-woo spiritual stuff. Doesn't he have a sword at one point? (laughs) That very well could be. It says a lot about this character that we wouldn't be sure. Um, I did not realize until now the connection that Always Be My Maybe has to Don't Trust the the in Apartment 40, whatever. 23. 23, which is that TV show was created by Nanachka Khan. Oh, so true. Good point. <laughs> and I love that they they did get her to direct this because a lot of people in Hollywood talk a big game about how representation matters, but they actually hired a a female director of color. They didn't just, you know, talk about it or they they wrote it, but they still ended up hiring a white man. I think that's important. Well, I mean, they it's interesting that they brought all of these like elements um, from Fresh Off the Boat because she created the show and um, Randall Park stars in it and Ellie Wong used to write for it. And briefly appeared on it, if I recall correctly, in a sort of a one episode appearance. Uh, it's a side note. Let's get back to that. <laughs> Let's get back to that Uber pool, which we actually don't know is an Uber pool at first because it's Isn't just the like two of them. Extra? Oh, yes. Well, in the back seat. Randall Park, um, Marcus's girlfriend, stays behind because she is still in love with Keanu, or that, that dispenses with her, basically. Yeah, that was pretty convenient. <laughs> Uh, although their relationship is five months old, I guess she was a strange character because a few scenes earlier, she was saying how she and Marcus were spiritually married. I guess they were trying to show that she's flaky, but I took her as sincere in sort of her philanthropic efforts. No, it was like complete bullshit. Was it? Yes. Oh, all right. No, I don't think it was because the the thing (laughs) she says about Keanu is that, I mean, maybe it a little was, but she talks about how he can make such a difference in the world, and that's why in the who would you kill in this room question, she <laughs> says her own boyfriend, because she can get something from Keanu, and that that's something I think... It's the D. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, no, she she and wants to do, do good with his, <laughs> with his, um, his riches, and yeah, some of it might be also that she wants the D, but... <laughs> okay, I have a question. So, say you've been dating a guy for five months, and then an opportunity is presented to you where you can get the D from Keanu. Do you go for it? Is the guy Marcus? Because then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just who you would it's date. It's just who I would date. Um, I, I might say, I don't know, this is very uncomfortable <laughs> introspection, Heather. I also don't want to answer this. Wow. <laughs> what about you, Ingu? Keanu all the way, baby. <laughs> um, back to the Uber pool. <laughs> oh, so there, um, I think uh, the Sasha character sort of comes over to Marcus's side and saying, you know, Keanu, he was a little bit much. And then they're fighting a little bit about um, how he, he has a band and he won't turn it into a bigger thing he's so content to be small time and she you know her she's so pretentious with her restaurateur stuff why can't she just um you know be herself and then that turns into a kiss and this kiss parallels their original first kiss in that the first time um Ali Wong kisses him and then apologizes and then he kisses her that's when they're they're teenagers and this time he kisses her and then apologizes and she goes in for it. This scene to me exemplified a lot of the problems I had with the central relationship in that it was doing the rom-com thing where the two leads argue and are theoretically calling each other on their shit, which is all very well and good. And I enjoy those scenes as much as anyone. The problem is that nothing Marcus said resonated for me. One of the things he says is that Sasha keeps winding up with these guys who aren't good for her. But Sasha already dumped the fiancé who wasn't good for her and already walked out 
on Keanu when he got ridiculous. So that really didn't seem to be calling her out on anything. She seems well aware that both of those guys were not good for her. And then his other criticism has to do with her career. And I think another major flaw of this movie is that the movie ends without ever there being a scene where he does go to her restaurant at one point, but he doesn't sit and have a meal at the restaurant she's already established. So That's we he can't afford it. <laughs> I mean, he knows the owner, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, we don't actually know if his criticisms of her restaurant are true and neither does he like we know a little bit from the decor oh the gooby chairs this and the other thing but that's not coming from Ali Wong for the most part that's coming from the people around her and her team I would have liked to establish whether she had actually sold out or if she just had a legitimately a business that she put herself into and that's what he's been mocking this whole time yeah I think the movie's perspective is that he's a little bit right but I think that's interesting in that this movie tries to be very um, politically correct in saying that Sasha's going to be the one with the career and the way this is going to end is that it's fine that, you know, she's going to be the more prominent one who makes more money. But are they trying to take her down a peg a little bit in that? Because you you do see like, oh, maybe Marcus is just kind of shitty. <laughs> like. <laughs> There is also a line, I think, where he says, like, Asian food is, like, supposed to be like this. And then he, like, names, like, a bunch of things. I forget exactly, but it's something like big portions and, like, everyone gets... Oh, yeah, a big bowl. Yeah, and, like, everyone should get to have some and, like, it shouldn't be... A tiny shot glass (laughs) is what he... Because they, earlier in the movie, they eat something out of a tiny shot glass, but crucially, it's not Sasha's restaurant. Yes. And like at like earlier in the movie, she had described a like her new restaurant, which is called Saintly Fair, um, and it was going to be like transdenominational fusion food. Um, I don't know what which that is means. just meaningless. I think transcendent, <laughs> transgressive. She has that whole scene where she's describing <laughs> it on the phone, and Marcus in one of the only good chemistry moments I felt in the whole movie between the two of them, he calls her out on her phone voice which as someone who speaks completely differently on the phone than I do in day-to-day life, although maybe I speak differently on podcasts, I don't know. (laughs) Who can be that self-aware? But he's making fun of her phone voice and her friend, who we haven't even mentioned, her obligatory rom-com best friend. um, Michelle Batu played her. I'm probably saying the last name wrong. Veronica. Veronica, who's heavily pregnant for much of the movie and is gay, another sort of progressive And also grew up with them, apparently, though you don't see her as a kid. You see her very briefly oh, you do? in a scene in the middle school where they're eating lunch. Nice. I actually didn't make the connection it was her on first viewing, but I went back and she is sitting with them. It's sort of throwaway, but it's, you know, a good detail to include. But so she walks in after they've had this argument about the phone voice and Sasha trying to be clever is like, oh, goodbye or ta-ta, Veronica or something. And she turns and she says, don't use your phone voice on me, bitch. <laughs> yes, uh, that was another good bitch. <laughs> So, um, going back to the food stuff, um, I think that, like, essentially, like, the resolution of this movie ends with, like, her eventually opening a new restaurant, like, after the one that she opens in San Francisco called Saintly Fair. And it turns out it's a Korean restaurant using recipes that she learned from Marcus's mom. And it's and named after her, too. It's called Judy's. Judy's Way. Yeah. Basically, uh, there's like a dish that we see like at the beginning of the movie where Judy teaches Sasha how to make it. And then that's sort of like the dish that Sasha shows Marcus as like a sign that like, okay, like now I'm coming back to my roots, which aren't like 100% her roots. But she had already planned this restaurant before Marcus came on the scene. Oh, no, she didn't. You're like... No. It, she had an opening I think coming up in New York. She did, and in real life she would have, but we're, we can just chalk that up to movie <laughs> I magic. Did not, I did not take this as her responding to his criticism. It I was. I this as yes. something that <laughs> you're she was wrong, you're, wow. you're being too literal. Um, so uh, on the food politics, I wanted to recommend a piece our former colleague Jenny Zhang wrote on eater.com that is about you know, the authenticity versus not authenticity debate and how it sort of boxes um, other cultures into a corner with with what's seen as real. And I, 
Um, I think it is a really interesting question and one of this movie's blind spots. And I think more specifically, when you tell um, non-white cooks or chefs, like you have to make this particular type of food and you have to make it authentic, then that doesn't give them the creativity to play around, which is sort of what... I think a lot of like foodie culture is about like trying new flavor profiles and such. And so Marcus telling her like, actually, you have to make like the food that like my mom made in order to be like (laughs) real Asian. It's not great. Like it's problematic. And I think in five years, people are going to be like, whoa, this movie was cute. But like, can you believe? There is an unevenness too in that Sasha performs two grand romantic gestures for Marcus. She buys all of his band's merch. (laughs) under a fake name and also she opens a restaurant you dedicated admit? to his mom which I just I don't understand what the reciprocation is here <laughs> well, as I've said so many times he, he tried out he agreed to try out for this bigger venue with his band Southeast after bungling the first audition and showing up drunk I don't, and peeing on an amp <laughs> yes which, I, which is a scene I did not believe by the way I don't know why like every movie feels like it has to have like a pee scene or a barf scene which is worse or better. And also, we knew him Mark. as a stoner, not a drunk. So shouldn't he have done something with that? Here, I think, is where the movie tried to redeem him, but for me, didn't meet me all the way in that I didn't really understand the psychology of exactly why Marcus was so stuck after his mother's death for such a long time beyond grief, just generally. Like, was he stuck because he associates his neighborhood and his life with his mom and he feels that moving on would be to forget her is he is it just that he never grew up and he's sort of eternally 18 for me they didn't really it was implied but they didn't really nail it down and in the scene with his father when his father's like I don't need a caregiver you need to go live your life I just wish they had nailed that down a little bit more for me For me, it was pretty satisfying. I think there's like a whole running theme where Marcus is like sort of increasingly angry at like the, I don't know if whitening is the right word, but like sort of like the hipsterification of San Francisco. And there's like a whole thing where like he does like a big rant about like all of these like hipster bars that sort of look alike constantly opening up in San Francisco. And I think the implication is that like the more of these places that open up, the harder it is for um, sort of like immigrant neighborhoods like his to stay alive. And so for me, the fact that like he only wanted to play at this like one club that was like in his neighborhood like for me that made sense for me if the movie had ended with him making a case for being content with that one club i think it would have been stronger than him what no growing for <laughs> reasons that are unclear to me i again i don't understand was this him getting over his mother's death that he moves on it it's just very muddled i think that Sasha actually had a much more interesting sense of closure. In that oh, no. No, no, no. I would disagree with you there. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> Even though she repairs things with her parents a little bit? She doesn't address her her anger at being left alone, which, it, like, is still really there. So her parents agree to... or. What happens is her parents go to her restaurant and they pay full price. They don't even say that they know her. And she she's so proud that they actually did that and ate her food and um, were willing to buck their their usual cheapness. But that doesn't make up for her being left alone as, but it's as a, a kid. <laughs> but it's at least a start toward repairing their relationship. I don't think it was intended to heal everything with one meal. But it was them showing up when they hadn't shown up. I mean, they showed up earlier in the movie and she kind of dismissed them. But, I mean, what did Marcus ever do for her, Heather? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, let's try to figure this out. Like, what does Marcus do for her? I think, like, Marcus makes sense as a symbol. But now I'm coming around to Marissa's way of thinking (laughs) in that, like, what what did he concretely do even when, Even in the speech where he finally gets a suit and because the first time that he goes with her to an event, he wears a T-shirt because she told him, you know, rich people aren't into suits anymore. Fair enough. Then he has to wear this awful coat that is the only one that the venue has where the man died and is like <laughs> twice his size. So he's, he's standing at this really formal event where Sasha is 
you know, a guest of honor and walks the red carpet and he's holding her purse and he looks ridiculous and she still turns in front of all of the cameras and points to him and says, that's my boyfriend. Yeah. And he is very offended because she calls him a regular guy, but he's worked really hard to be a regular guy. He's he's clinging to being a regular guy. I just, I don't get this. She has a great dress in that scene, by the way. She does. <laughs> so then later when he comes back in a suit and seems, you know, to sort of embrace actually supporting her, which incidentally, both of those other two crappy boyfriends did support her career, Keanu and Daniel De Kim. He finally comes around to that. And his whole speech was about, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to hold your with purse. You and, yeah. It was very like, why you? <laughs> like, couldn't anyone? Well, she had a crush on him uh, when they were This is very little. like heterosexual girl guy therefore must like be together. low bar for men yeah um i, I liked followed- this movie a lot by the way <laughs> <laughs> as much as it doesn't sound like that i just i think the work plot which most good romantic comedies have a solid work plot was so much more interesting to me that i almost wish the romance had been the b story and it had focused more on sasha and her family and what it is she wants and coming to terms with her food and and making food on her own terms. I guess you could argue that he reconnects her with her roots. Like maybe she wouldn't have made up to the extent that she did with her parents if if Marcus didn't pave the way for that. But that's a stretch. <laughs> Does Marcus have any interaction with them? With what? With her, with parents? her parents? Yeah, I don't maybe know if he's party. ever even met them. I don't know. <laughs> And there, there's like a montage where they're having fun around San Francisco and he sees a statue and he goes, boop. So he does that. <laughs> he does boop to a nipple, I believe. Yes. What a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, by the way, on behalf of all heterosexuals <laughs> for um, the heterosexuality of this movie. I don't mean to single this movie out specifically, but it was notable to me that a lot of writers who are smart and progressive and thoughtful on race and gender and sexuality give no thought to disability. And that only occurred to me in this movie because there's a throwaway line about how many people in San Francisco have uh, placards for parking. And then Sasha says something along the lines of, and then they're walking around, they're able-bodied. This is a very common gripe among disabled people because not all disabilities are visible and there are plenty of disabilities that aren't evident by looking at someone that would require a parking placard. I know this was supposed to establish like San Francisco bona fides, but just uh, it was such a strange line and it kind of stuck out to me. So... I have a possible rebuttal. Okay. And this is like based on a feeling and not like facts. All right, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> this to me, I, I saw this criticism a lot on Twitter. And I don't feel like this joke is on people with disabilities. I think this joke is like based on like how I perceive it. Like uh, in Sasha's view, Chinese American people faking disability in order to get those placards. And it is a stereotype that I have never come across, but they're in like a very Asian neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And the whole scene is sort of like them coming out of like a dim sum restaurant. And I feel like she was saying something about like Chinese American people and Ali Wong is a person who grew up in San Francisco. And so that's, I feel like, the reading that I would have. Right. And I understand that. I'm just also, just in a movie that is making such an effort to be inclusive in other ways, it struck a, the wrong chord with me just because it is such a common experience for people with invisible disabilities to be accused of faking it for good parking. I don't Can- know. Didn't rub me the wrong way. Just to rebut just a little bit more, I don't know if that is what she was going for in terms of sort of like making fun of these scammers. But if that is the case, I actually really liked that joke because I feel like so much of this movie is about like having all of these like very specific 
uh, Asian American cultural touchstones. Like there's like a whole like emphasis on characters like coming into the house and like taking off their shoes or there's like plastic on the furniture um and is that an asian thing my grandma does <laughs> i don't think it's only an asian thing but okay. it's definitely a some asians thing and there were definitely like i think like the big dish that sort of like ties in like all of the movie together is like kimchi jjigae which is like a thing that i have eaten like a million times and so for me it, like it's nice to have like all of these like little cultural details but it's also sort of like nice for Asian Americans to be able to make fun of Asian Americans and to like not sort of like put themselves on a pedestal Mm. and sort of and so like that's what I thought like the joke was doing. I buy that as an explanation. I still think it was perhaps less considered than some of the other areas but I I do buy that explanation. Thank you Ingo. You've eased my mind a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I was also wondering what you guys think of all the jokes about Asian Americans being cheap. I saw at least one review that was appalled at this, but I I saw that in a similar way where it was Ali Wong and Randall Park feeling like they could poke fun at their own or stereotypes in their own community. Yeah, that I that that writer who was against it like had never met an Asian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, so we like the rap at the end, yes? I liked all of, as much as I've been down on Marcus this entire podcast, I loved all of his raps, and I do, in fact, think he is talented. Do you think that the rap makes up for his shittiness, and therefore the rap makes him a good partner for Sasha? No. <laughs> well, there's something admirable about him staying loyal to his bandmates after all these years. Is it? He's holding them back. (laughs) They very Um, vocally want to do more. Okay. (laughs) You know, there's a point, too. I also thought the rap was very specific. Like, when I first heard he was a rapper, I was like, oh, no. But then, like, maybe it's this San Francisco-specific thing where it was also kind of... San Francisco rappers rap like that. (laughs) I don't know. It it just... I, I was surprised by how much I liked it. I would listen to I Punched Keanu Reeves on the radio. No question. Is that the name of the song? I believe that is the name of the final song that plays over the credits. Uh, I I thought all of his songs were good. I thought the band was great. Um, Didn't feel... Even the tennis ball song? The tennis ball song was fine, and obviously they were trying to... I love there's a shot of a Google search on his computer that's what color is a tennis ball. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, I guess maybe as a because t- it's random that this band member decides that they're going to do tennis balls. And so I guess they write the song around that. But I did wonder if also it was they were trying to do a play on the name of the band, which is Hello Peril, which is a play on Yellow Peril. Oh, really? Or tennis I balls didn't know yellow? That. I always thought they were green. I think but... of them as green. You know, some some of the jokes in this movie didn't land. And I forgive it. I thought yeah. it was extraordinarily funny. Yes. It was very funny. And, like, they're, I did not think that they were, like, great dramatic actors, which goes back to what we were talking about, how the romance is, like, a little tepid. Mm-hmm. But um, they are both comedians, and it is an incredibly funny script. And, yeah, it is definitely... I guarantee if you see it, you will probably watch it on your laptop alone and still laugh out loud. That is a promise I could... I feel I can confidently make... I will say for it that I think it in the pantheon of Netflix romantic comedies, it is toward the top. It's one of the better ones for sure. Well, I think that the Netflix rom-coms sort of get pegged as like middling. And that has been my impression of some of them. Um, what was that? Set it up was kind of eh, oh and the someone great. But I this was like an actual movie. <laughs> <laughs> Right, as opposed to what a lot of these Netflix rom-coms feel like, which is a TV movie, this felt like a big mainstream picture, which perhaps is why they showed it in theaters to critics. I, A lot of Netflix movies... And did that could, crazy NDA thing. <laughs> right, a lot of Netflix movies critics can watch from the comfort of their laptop, but I'm interested, Ingu, that you saw it in theaters and you know you were all laughing together and there was that communal experience because I watched it at home by myself, and I did not experience that, but I am enjoying talking to the two of you about it very much. Did you laugh out loud? 
I did not. I'm not a big laugher at all. Wow. Except when you and Heather say funny things. <laughs> oh, thank you. Should we note the Mariah Carey thing, or is it just like I don't care. Work? Okay. I, I, it has no thematic connection to this yeah, movie. Yeah, it doesn't really. The title of this movie has no thematic connection to this movie. <laughs> Uh, again, I like the movie. <laughs> Hated Marcus liked the movie. Okay. Well, I did not see this movie in a theater, but I am thrilled to have the same sense of community by talking to both of you. Thank you, Heather. You're welcome. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks, Ingu. Thanks, bitch. <laughs> please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt, and our engineer is Merritt Jacob. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.